Benvenidos and welcome to the Platform Latino podcast where we profile, highlight, and bring to the airwaves the successes of our community and those helping us to get us there. I'm your host, Osvaldo Valdez, and I'd like to thank you for joining us and enjoy the show. Today's episode is a special one. I recorded this back in 2018 for a project while I was taking the Alt MBA course, which I recommend to everyone. I wanted to share this episode for several reasons. One, to give you a little insight about my life and to introduce my and share my mother's story. And lastly, the timing was perfect because A, my mom's favorite holiday is Halloween, and on the 29th, she's celebrating her 36th wedding anniversary with my dad. It's a good one and makes me love my mom even more as I re-listen and learn more about her upbringing. I love you, Mom, and I hope you guys enjoy. <laughs> All right, Mom. So this is like where I want to start a podcast, and this is the format and the premise is interviewing um, prominent and successful Latinos and Latinas. And Thank you. <laughs> and um, just to kind of give each everybody's story, and then so people that are listening – you know, can listen to the story, hear about the hardships and the successes, and, you know, help, it helps them and puts a positive influence in their mind, as well as somebody to look up to. So I thought for my first one, my inaugural podcast, who else but my loving mother, Barbara Valdez. That's me. Actually, it's Barbara Fernandez Valdez. Barbara Fernandez Valdez, which is very important in our family. Yes. So um, we, can, we can get a little bit into that later. But um, I wanted to start off this, since this is the first podcast and people don't really know who I am, Osvaldo Valdez, I want, aka Ozzy, which is a, my street name. <laughs> um, so, Mom, why don't you describe me how you would describe somebody to somebody that you meet on the streets or they ask, oh, how's your son? What is he like? Well, first of all, since I'm your mother, I would say, oh, he's the perfect son. He's, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just right the way he is. But if I wanted to seriously and honestly describe you, um, of course, it depends on the person you're talking to and the feel that you get for why they want to know the information. But overall, I would say that um, you've always been a curious person but yet you respect the ordinary. Um, you've always been compassionate, but there's always been that little bit of mischievousness that, you know, not necessarily got you into trouble, but there was always that side of you. So compassion on one side and mischief on, on the other. Um, as you grew older, I would say sociable, but you still enjoy your me time. And I think that you really benefit a lot. And I see a lot of, um, what do you call, almost like you thrive when you come out of your time, your me time. Um, successful because, of course, you know, you've had success academically in school and successful in your um, career endeavors but you've always been kind enough not to forget the underdog and to try, and there's the dog, sorry. The underdog. Stop that. <laughs> um, try to, you know, help those below you or the underdog, like I had stated. Um, you care about other people, which I think brings me to the most important thing that is the concern that as a mother and a person I have about your personality, that you would be what I call a sensitive extrovert. So you're out there trying to live life to the fullest, reaching for the stars, taking advantage of opportunities, but yet you can sense and feel um, people's heartache um, when they're in trouble. I think you feel it sometimes as much as they do or you know, close to it. And when you're offended, you personally are offended. I feel that um, you might still have that smile on your face, but inside 
you, you know, you ache. So overall, it's like opposites, but I feel that you're pretty well-rounded individual. And, you know, of course, I'm very, very proud of you and love you very much, which I don't know if we're allowed to say, but the hell with it. You can say anything. It's a very open podcast and, you know, I want to keep it raw and, and, and authentic. But um, if you had to sum that all up in one word, if like Ozzy is that one word, what would that one word be? Genuine. Genuine. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. And no, you haven't paid me for this. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom. The main goal for the, this podcast, which I mentioned in the intro, is, you know, just hear people's stories and how they got to where they are. My, my mother was a, an educator for 37 years. She started, in, if you, the age she gives everybody, maybe she started when she was 10. But, <laughs> but um, she was very successful in Broward County. She, she's a proud Seminole, repping FSU, yes. to, the point where she, to the point where she made me pay for my own um, college application to UF because she was not going to give any money to the Gators. But um, she's, she's had a very successful career. So um, what, what would you say your upbringing was like? Well, you know, always in retrospect, you know, you think about the things that the difficulties you faced and maybe some of the hardships, but when you get to this point in time, you say, oh, it was pretty good. But I think one of the main, um, and I challenges, challenge is the right word, was that both my parents being Hispanic, my mom Puerto Rican and my father Cuban, um, that I always had to balance between the Hispanic Barbara and the American Barbara. I was born in New York, but of course I was raised ethnically as a Hispanic, but I had to balance both worlds. And that was not always as easy as you can you know, maybe imagine it's not like you're Hispanic at home and American in the streets because the two just mesh together and you just have to find where you can do certain things, say certain things, and where you just need to keep on walking and not say a word. What was, uh, well, I have two questions. What was what the moment that you remember that you realized that you, you kind of have these two, two, worlds that you have to combine the american life and the hispanic upbringing when did you realize that there is it and then the second question is could you give me an example of when when this happened or like um, when you experienced okay i have to flip on the latin switch and flip off the american and vice versa well you know i don't think i can pinpoint it because it just happens naturally um, it kind of builds up. I do remember an incident in fourth grade. So I was probably um, around nine years old that I started, I was talking to a friend at school and I told her, I don't think I belong to my mom and dad. I think I'm adopted. And she goes, why? Do you remember other people in your life? And I said, no, it's because some of the things I want to do and some of the things I say, they think are so like, where do you come up with these ideas? Why do you want to do those things? So I think probably that's where I first got my inkling that, okay, I'm, I was going to have to straddle two cultures. I'm not knowing the word at the time being culture, but probably fourth grade was the realization that there were two different things that were going on in my life. So. Gotcha. And what kind of neighborhood did you grow up in? in the, she's from the Bronx. She's um, in the Bronx. I'm going to talk about once I was in elementary school, because before that, you know, when you're not in school, basically your neighborhood is inside your apartment. But um, in New York, when we, I was born in New York, <laughs> then we moved to Puerto Rico, went back to New York, moved to California. From California, we went to Puerto Rico. 
actually from California, we went back to New York and Puerto Rico and then back and then to Florida. So there was a lot of traveling because my father was looking for, you know, a better life, a better situation, better jobs. And um, so in the neighborhoods that I grew up, because that's what I remember most in New York, because I think I experienced more there than in the other places, it was um, regular city, the Bronx neighborhood. It was, you know, people think now the Bronx, all the crime and whatever. But when you're young and back in the, I would say, 60s, it wasn't necessarily like that. In our neighborhood, you were either Catholic or Jewish. You either went to public school or Catholic school. And there weren't as many Hispanics as in other parts of the Bronx, at least not in the area that we lived in. At. So I was one of the few Hispanics at my school. And, um, you know, there were some others. And when we went to California, it was a little, but we weren't there very long. Um, that was a little bit of a change as far as the type of neighborhood. It wasn't as city, even though it was LA. But um, in New York, basically, you know, fourth grade. I'm sorry? I remember you telling me there was a lot of Italians in that area. In the yeah. And yeah. So, but, you, but did you feel like you related more to the Italians than maybe the, the American and Caucasian um, <laughs> like white people in the neighborhood? No, I probably related more to um, Catholics, but I was always curious about um, the Jewish kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, we would inter act very briefly. Um, I was always curious as to what the other kids were allowed or not allowed to do and compare it to my family and what I was allowed. You know, sometimes I used to think, oh, they're so strict and they're so mean. And I don't think that they were doing it to be strict or mean. I think they were just doing it because that's how they thought they needed to raise children. And a lot of that was um, culturally, um, what do you call it? They were brought up that way, so they thought that that's how they had to bring it us up. I do remember a time, and I want to say it was probably sixth grade, that I had had enough with the being so restricted and not being allowed to really have a lot of friends. People were always allowed to come to my house, but I was never allowed to visit my friends. Um, because my mom always had the fear that something might happen. So that particular year, when I had one of a few meltdowns, which, you know, you weren't supposed to know that, but yes, your mother has had quite a few of those. Um, I remember crying all night, through the night, all morning, and saying I couldn't take it anymore. And I guess I scared my parents enough that the next day when the kids were all going out to, and I still remember her name, Maria Fata's Pizzeria, that I was allowed to go. And it was like, ah, I'm so happy. I get to go out with kids alone without my parents. Because that was another thing. Any birthday party that I went to, my mom was always there. And it was so embarrassing. Um, and she thought other adults would be there and she would find out that maybe one or two adults and the rest were just kids. And she thought that was horrible, that that was giving too much control and people could get in trouble that way. But anyway, back to the pizzeria. So I went out with my friends to the pizzeria. Maria was in my class at school and her parents owned the pizzeria. And I had the best time. I came back so invigorated and just so happy. And from that point on, I was allowed to do more. But, um, you know, still with some restrictions, which was fine, because I was just happy to go visit people and go out into the streets of New York. And by the time I was in eighth grade, I was allowed to go to downtown to Manhattan to go to Macy's and to go to the movies and do all kinds of things with my friends. Um, and it was like liberation. <laughs> Freedom. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that reminds me when I came back from college, um, 
I don't know if you ever noticed this, but I was used to going out later. And one, one, I think it was Christmas or break. I was sitting on the couch around like nine or 10 PM. And you're, you're like, aren't you going to go out? And I'm like, yeah, probably in an hour. So you're like, no, that's when you should be coming home. <laughs> so. I don't remember that. I was never that way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned eighth grade because it was around this time when you moved to Florida, right? For high school. It was after ninth grade. Oh, okay. Yes. So coming from New York, which is a huge metropolis, there's public transportation, there's a, a different type of diversity. What was the biggest realization once you got down here? Like, well, that my life was over. <laughs> that I finally found freedom and then it was <laughs> yanked away and I was sent, you know, to this place called the Sunshine State. But it's funny because what I, being from the city and New York and starting um, going to a, high, a public high school in Fort Lauderdale, and you would tell the kids, oh, I'm from New York, I just moved. Like, oh my God, you must do this and that. So they thought I was the bad girl. And I had never been thought of as a bad girl. And all of a sudden I had this label and it wasn't, she was the Hispanic kid, like in New York, it was no, I was the bad girl. And then it was like, I don't want to take that away because, you know, that kind of has its perks mentally. Um, but yet I didn't want to be bad. So I started withdrawing from some of the people I was meeting because right away they would say, oh, you know, you have cigarettes, you want to do this, you know, your parents are working, can we come over? So now I had to, you know, play up to my parents' upbringing that, okay, I have to kind of, you know, and I'll be honest, lie my way out of this because I didn't want them to know that I was probably a goody two-shoes, you know, but I like the idea of them thinking as Barbara the bad girl. Yeah, I remember you telling me the story about the cigarettes. Oh, you must smoke. And you're like, no. <laughs> Just a little background history. My mom went to predominantly Catholic schools while she was in New York. So she, she was one of the Catholic school girls. But, and and uh, ethnically, what was different is that in New York, um, yeah, you know, the, in my neighborhood, the Hispanic population was small. Um, but I knew they were all around because, of course, how do you get away from that in a city like New York? But in my neighborhood, it was a few Hispanics. And then, like I said, you know, we sorted them out as, you know, Jewish or Catholic. But I guess we didn't really <laughs> know who they were. Um, and then when I came to Florida, it was more like a white, black thing. And that really blew my mind because... When I started at the high school, they had just started a, doing a double session. So I was in the afternoon um, session from 12 to, I think, 4. And that's just when they had, believe it or not, I'm not that old. And at that school was when they had started the busing of Black kids into that school. It wasn't the integration from, you know, years before that, but it was like, it was a predominantly white neighborhood and now they were gonna bring black kids in. And there was all kinds of upheaval at Stranahan because blacks were coming. And I'm thinking, yeah, like, and, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? And it was like this stereotypical thing of, you know, it's them and they're gonna cause trouble and, you know, there were policemen in the schools. Now, coming from an all-girls Catholic high school, I never seen a police officer at a school. And here they were in the hallways and, you know, monitors in the, you know, classes because they were expecting this problem with the black kids being bused. And they would get all the white kids into school and then the buses would arrive with what they call, you know, the black kids are coming. And... Now, did you... I, I wasn't used to that because we knew we had blacks, we had white, we had Hispanics, Jews, but that black thing wasn't a big discussion in New York. Now, now, did you have any, did you ever relate saying, you know, that, 
that label that you got as oh New York bad girl like from the city to the the stereotypes that they're putting on the the black kids coming into the, the school being integrated did you ever say okay they look at me from because I'm from New York in this light and now they're looking at um I don't know if I looked at it that way I just would sympathize like at first it was I can't understand why they feel that way and god I would feel you know funny I just felt bad I guess badly for them and I didn't really relate it to myself but I just knew that that to me that wasn't right that were you ever in conflict that your friends are like, why are you sympathizing with them? Why, like, don't talk to them? <laughs> um, the only thing I can remember, and I'm sure there were more instances, but um, I became friends with this one girl that, I don't know, for some reason I remember she wanted to be a nurse, and that's why I now I remember and they had started giving a show on TV. This was a white American girl. Um, and the show was, I think Julia was the name of the show. And it was one of the first shows that the star was a, a black female and she was a nurse. And so I told this girl, oh, do you watch, did you watch Julia last night? And she said, oh no, my father would kill me if I watched a show with blacks um, where there were blacks in it. And I said, why? And she goes, because blacks aren't like us. And she goes, were you allowed to watch it? And I said, yeah, I, my parents have never said I can't watch black people on TV. <laughs> they never said I couldn't watch, you know, maybe not good things on TV, but never anything about the kind of people or what they look like. And she said, yeah, my parents don't like blacks. As a matter of fact, um, we might be moving because the school now has blacks in it. And that was something that for some reason, I always remember that encounter. I'm saying, okay, she wants to be a nurse. This lady in the show is named Julia. She's a nurse. And that's, I guess, why I asked her. She had watched it. And it was just like, Mm. you know even then that's like so weird and that's why I think we've made so much progress and now we're unfortunately I feel like we've gone regressed in the past year and a half but I won't go into that <laughs> we're trying to stay apolitical but if yes if you want to voice your opinion you're more than welcome to but I don't um, have enough time <laughs> I know just from knowing you that you didn't like high school too much in Florida, so you took the fast track. What, what support, what, what resistance, how did you find it, what gave you that idea? Well, um, so 10th grade was when we moved to Florida, the beginning of 10th grade, and I did all of 10th grade at Stranahan. I hated it because of the whole situation, plus the fact that it was really big compared to the school that I went to. Um, so many classes, so many people. I just didn't like the whole atmosphere of the school. And so when I started 11th grade, I decided that I just couldn't do this anymore. So I went to the telephone book, the yellow pages. I don't know if you know what that is, it was a big book. <laughs> All the pages were yellow and it advertised companies <laughs> there's no Google and I started looking for private schools and I found this one Adelphi Prep Academy and their main offices were in New York and so I figured okay New York it has to be good so I went ahead and read a little bit about it the little bit that was in the yellow pages and then one day when I was at school after I think it was the second or third class, I decided to skip. That's a bad New York in me. <laughs> so I walked out of school. I had already found out which bus I needed to take to get to the school. And I got on the bus, went to Adelphi, um, asked to see the principal or the headmaster, as they were called at that school. 
And basically I said, I want to enroll. Um, I don't have a lot of money to pay, you know, how much was the tuition, blah, blah, blah. I, is there any way I can get some assistance? And so they finally asked, well, where are your parents? And I said, well, I would have to call them <laughs> and tell them that I want to go to this school. And so they explained that it was um, a, a school where basically there were teachers and they were certified, but you kind of went at your own pace. So if you wanted to finish a course in two months and you were motivated enough, you could finish and then quickly jump into the next course and whatever. And um, so they said, well, we really think at this point we need to call your parents. So First I gave off, my- Let me just interrupt. I think, I think you're the yeah. only person, I think you're the only person ever to skip school to go to another school. <laughs> to enroll in, an, in another school yeah so i they called my dad and my mom was helping him at the gas station that was his business then and i they explained it and then i of course explained it again in spanish to them and um that was you know they said okay and then the school said that they would go ahead and pay for my books okay. um you know, who knows what they were thinking at the time, but they did that. And so that was 11th grade. And by the end of 11th grade, I decided that that school was great as far as working at your own pace, but it was just not, I didn't feel I was learning enough from the teachers. Like I was learning a lot by reading and educating myself, but not from them as a source. So I went ahead and um, applied to junior college and they accepted me. They looked at my transcript and accepted me on probation that if I did find the first semester, I could go ahead and stay. So I never even graduated from 12th grade. I just went from 11th to Broward Junior College and well, all right. This is a, an exclusive because I didn't even know that my <laughs> my mom just didn't finish high school. But did you did you get a diploma or nope nope? So you just said hey yeah. I'll, I'll just go to college instead. Yeah, <laughs> high school is not for me. <laughs> Those are the good old days when you could just walk in. <laughs> I'm here. I'm ready. Teach me. <laughs> And then, um, so like well, one thing that I did want to explain, I don't even know if this is what you're looking for, but even before my New York time and stuff, that being the first American child in a first generation Hispanic home, well, not even first generation because they were the ones that came here, that one of the things that I think I always felt pressured about and didn't like, but yet probably made me who I am, is that I had so much responsibility because I always had to make the doctor's appointments. I had to speak up, you know, for my parents. When my father didn't understand something, I had to, you know, step in and help him out. Um, if my mom didn't, you know, know how to write something it's like i had to do all those grown-up things um i see your bed mm -hmm. <laughs> don't do that <laughs> um all those responsibilities that i didn't think children should be doing and even as a child i knew that <laughs> that should be happening but yet it was things that i had to do um when then my brother was born I had to go to all the parent conferences and sit in with my mom so I could, in case she didn't understand something, I could go ahead and translate. And I just always kind of resented that I had to do all those things. So, so that's a common like trend with a lot of um, families where their, their parents are from other countries and they're born here or they're brought here and they're the, the ones that speak English fluently what benefits in your life did you get from having those experiences early on? You know, maybe prematurely, well, I think, but. I think it helped my leadership ability because, you know, what you might call bossy, I call that I was always put in that position that I had to be kind of in charge, take over when there was a little chaos or a misunderstanding. I had to step in and say, okay, you know, let me get, 
this going because somebody doesn't understand either here or there. And um, so I think it benefited me in that way that I always had a go. I always felt that I had to go in, assess the situation and see if I had to do something to make something go or happen. And um, so it, and, you know, I guess it's something good, but at the time it didn't feel like it was something good. And when, and when did you see that you had these leadership traits and, and experience that you- Well, when I walked out of high school and went to another school and enrolled, probably <laughs> that was one of the times. Um, and then, in college. You could tell you're, you're farther mature than, than some yeah. of the other students. Yeah. Not, you know, and I don't know if you want to call it maturity, but that I wasn't afraid of stepping up and taking the initiative. Because I always felt I had to. So it wasn't that I necessarily wanted to. I felt that that was my role, that I had to be, you know, if there was silence in the class and the teacher asked something, even if it wasn't the right answer, I started talking and saying something because, oh my God, what is this dead silence? You know, somebody do something. So I felt, okay, it's you, say something. Okay. So yeah, you, you kind of honed your skill before others. Maybe you had a lot, you know, there, there's a, a theory that it takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become an expert in something. So you might've already been halfway there by the time you went to college then yeah. people just starting, you know, that had a few hours of um, leadership experience and deliberate practice of, of leadership tactics. So you went to Broward Community College when you decided you were tired of high school. <laughs> and then from there, you went to FSU, Florida State University, to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, what was the, the cultural dynamic when you did go from Maybe if you want to explain shortly how BCC was, Broward Community College, or, and then give a little bit more, because um, this was, you went to FSU and BCC in the 70s, right? So, like, just this, yeah. explain the dynamic there and um, what you think the difference is a little bit between from when you went to college and the, and the culture and the environment versus how you, you kind of see it today. Well... I don't want to say how I, when today does not refer to the Trump era. So today refers to pre-Trump. And I'm sorry, but I have to say that. Um, so in BCC, of course, it was a lot more diverse. There were, I joined a club um, that was called Circle K, not like the <laughs> gas station little <laughs> supermarket thing, but it was sponsored by the Kiwanis. And there were, you know, all types of people. I would say, again, it was predominantly white, but we had African-American students from other countries, you know, Hispanics. So there was a, a heck of a lot more diversity. And a lot of the activities that you did with other clubs and, you know, even opened the door to learning more about other people and other cultures. And that was probably when I first started feeling like, okay, it's all right to be Hispanic. Not that I didn't think it was all right to be, but it was like, it's not a hindrance. It's okay. There's other people going through the same thing, doing this dual or even sometimes more than two um, cultural balance thing that I was, you know, that biculturalism. So that I would feel was when I first started, you know, um, recognizing and appreciating my Hispanic roots because of the di diversity that I saw around me. That's when I started socializing a lot more, um, you know, going to a lot of parties and hanging out and doing all of the things that probably traditionally high school kids did and continue through college, but that was my first time doing those things were these groups um, like diverse groups or were they predominantly hispanic or white or no if they were always um always predominantly white um but with you know little pockets of um you know other cultures and um and what, and just, at the time for some reason we had a lot of bahamians <laughs> at bcc and in this club 
And um, that was, you know, that was neat. Finding someone also from, I guess, the Caribbean that had some things in common with Cubans and Puerto Ricans, and yet didn't look like the Cubans and Puerto Ricans that I mainly knew, which were not as dark skin as many Bahamians are. No, no. Miami and South Florida has a long reputation of being predominantly Hispanic and in the late 50s with the the revolution in Cuba and Castro taking over, there was a big influ, influx of Cubans to South Florida. Now, why don't you think that there was more representation of Hispanics in in these scenarios in, in high school and college? I think because they were in Dade and not in Broward. All the the people that did the, you know, the white flight when blacks move in, the whites go out. Well, whites left Dade because of the Cuban influx. And um, that, you know, so Broward was like, you know, more, less Hispanic. And then we always heard that Palm Beach was really hardly any Hispanics. And who knew if that was true or not, but those were things you heard, you know, when you were having talks with others, because of course now in college you hear more, you have these discussions with other peers about race and ethnicity and all of that, which, you know, you really, I didn't have in the, the, in high school or in elementary school. So this was, you know, kind of a different things. And again, Broward was by sections, you know, so you had your black neighborhoods, you had your white neighborhoods, your rich neighborhoods, and then there was, you know, areas. And that was the first time that we had moved into an area that was becoming um, more Hispanic. So, because all along my father never moved us to predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods. And it was just till recently that I found out the reason he did that, because I always wondered how come we didn't live in the barrio, how come we didn't live near, you know, buildings with lots of Hispanics. And he said he wanted us to have the same opportunities in, um, well, the same opportunities as white American kids would have in those neighborhoods that I might not have an Angelo, my brother might not have in a Hispanic neighborhood. No, no, that brings up a, a good point. This is, it might be my own opinion, but um, sometimes I feel like it might not be so much race, but more so socioeconomic restrictions that provides more opportunities like grandpa provided for you guys being in a a predominantly white neighborhood or more affluent neighborhood that more oppor opportunities do come available that might not be recognized in a predominantly racial or ethnic neighborhood. Do you agree with that? Or? Um, I agree with that. I don't think that's the whole issue, but definitely that is one um, major point point that that does happen, that economic um, status, I can almost say like in, an, in the neighborhood that we lived in Weston, that this was- where I grew up. Yeah, an affluent neighborhood, race or ethnicity was not as much of an issue because it was almost as long as you have the money you fit in type thing instead of, well, you look different than I do. You speak another language. And, you know, then it was a little, you know, if you can afford it, you can be here. So I'm not saying that's blanket a good thing, but basically that was the, you know, in many cases, the, the viewpoint, of course, you, you know, now I realize that we had all these people with these hidden opinions that haven't felt comfortable um, airing their racist views. And, you know, maybe now it would be different, but definitely in a place like Weston, it was, 
it doesn't matter where you're from as long as you can afford to be here you can it's okay so and, and did you ever like when was the first time you felt surrounded by latinos or hispanic like you're like whoa <laughs> i'm not the the token hispanic <laughs> <laughs> well let me go back one step because um we didn't get to fsu that in at fsu i discovered more about the black american culture than i had ever in any of my previous schools and i felt like i blended in and blend is a <laughs> definitely wrong word but felt very comfortable with black friends and hanging out and finding out it doesn't mean i you know i had my other groups of friends but they didn't always all hang out together so i could fit which is still true to this day i could belong to various groups and feel comfortable in those groups and it was okay um did you ever feel like when you're hanging out with um a predominantly black or african-american group did you ever feel like they felt as comfortable as you may have felt or did you did you feel like they 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 knew you're different and they treated you different or not i i didn't feel that if it were true or not i don't know but i didn't feel that at fsu i did feel that later on in life um being around um you know african-american people but I didn't at the time at FSU. I think there we went back because of course FSU was still at that time, you know, that typical Southern school type thing. And, you know, definitely when you say, you would say you were Hispanic, you know, people would look at you again. My skin not being as dark as what many white people think Hispanic looks like, it was like, let me take a double take and see, oh, okay, yeah, she is Hispanic, you know, so. <laughs> Have you ever, did you ever experience somebody thinking you're white and saying anything bad about Hispanics? Um, yes. And how'd you a react? But it since it's so hard for me to keep my feelings to myself and my expressions, it didn't go very far. <laughs> so, so you're in education for, for almost four decades. What what changes in diversity did you see happen? Because I know you worked from, it was more predominantly elementary school. Well, I've worked in all kinds of schools. So I've worked in diverse schools. I've worked at um, predominantly white schools and I've definitely worked at, I can't even say predominantly black school, like almost all black schools, <laughs> you know. So I've seen it all and I've seen the changes as you know through the years and things being mainly policies made to include more people because sometimes policies are made that they don't even realize that they're excluding someone i don't think it's done intentionally but then when things go into effect all of a sudden you realize well i wonder why this part of the population isn't participating well, because the way you've written the program or the way you've designed something doesn't allow, you know, not outright, you're not allowed, but, you know, it doesn't give people the opportunities to participate. And um, so I've seen a lot of those changes. Is that just in test taking or policy? And policies and programs, especially programs, I've seen that change, you know, and again, I can only speak for Broward County when I say this while I was employed there, that um, even with the gifted program, so they have a criteria that your IQ has to be a certain IQ in order for you to even be considered. So that's why usually the first part of a, the gifted um, evaluation process is an IQ test. So if you don't achieve the 135, well, you know, there's no need to go on because you're, you know, might be a high achiever, but not in the gifted spectrum. 
again, then the gifted program was predominantly white because those were the kids that were able to get that. And so you say, well, if it's IQ, your intelligence quotient, it shouldn't matter where you're from because you, you know, you need that IQ. Your brain is your brain. The brain doesn't have color or culture, but it does because if you were raised with certain cultural aspects and criteria and the test is designed by people that are only looking at white Americans, then definitely you're discriminating against those other people. So it's almost impossible for them to get that 135 because some of those questions they would never be able to get right because that's not part of their circle of knowledge. So you're saying so that they couldn't relate then to the changes question. policy change is okay. So part of the criteria is if you're African American and you get um, a one I don't know, I wanna say 115, I don't remember exactly what it is now, um, then we will continue the process and see if you meet the rest of the criteria. And then you started seeing other people in the program because... But, but was, it better, was it better to lower the bar score-wise to allow the diversification or to acclimate the test? test well, probably the best thing to do is um, change the test, but that's very difficult to find a test that would be inclusive of all cultures, no. you know, and then you don't want to go ahead and say, well, the white kids are going to take this test, the black kids are going to take this test, the Hispanic kids are going to take this test. Yeah, so changes like that. Another thing with the... <laughs> segregation type of thing. So they had busing, like I mentioned to you, and always the black kids would be bused to white schools, and therefore you'd have integration. But finally, parents came around, well, how come the white kids can't be bused to black schools and achieve the same thing? <laughs> so what does the county come up with? They create magnet programs and they put these specialized, wonderful programs in predominantly black schools to attract the white kids to go there. What, around what years were, was this rolled out? Like, was it in the 80s or? Yeah, probably early, early 80s. This is a side um, note, guys. I, 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 went to, I went to a magnet program at Boyd Anderson for the International Baccalaureate Program. So I was bused from Weston 25 miles into Lauderdale Lakes where, and it was this historic program that they, they still do to this day. But that's just a, a little side And expert. it was a fabulous program. Um, very rigorous, very when well I managed. But again, you know, the my point is that the reason, the only, I don't want to say the only way, but the most effective way that they could find to bring white kids into black school was putting a program there that would attract them, which if you think about it, it's mm, a little iffy because that's, you know, you're, I'm still, I'm paying you to come here. Mm -hmm. But for the black kids going into white schools, it was, well, you're going to come here and travel the 25 miles and then, you know, that's it, you know. Now, when they started those magnet programs, if you were at a white school and you wanted to go to Boyd Anderson to go to the IB program, you had to be white. You couldn't be Hispanic. This is when they first rolled out the program. This is when I already had you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so mid to late eighties. Um, so because they were saying we're trying to um, equalize the numbers of black whites in the school, so 
bringing another minority in isn't going to help the numbers. So if you want to cry discrimination, what more that here's a person that qualifies to be in this program because they're, you know, very gifted in dance, if it was a performing arts program, or they're super intelligent for a baccalaureate program, but we, we, you can't go because you're Hispanic. And I remember working with someone whose daughter wanted to go so badly, and they kept telling her, no, you can't go. And I'm thinking, I mean, how do these professionals, educated professionals, can even say these things out loud? Like, do you hear yourselves? And that probably didn't last very long before, you know, by that time you had a lot of advocacy groups um, that would come out and speak and, you know, go to the school board meetings and saying, no, I don't think so. You know, that doesn't work that way. Okay. And I, I just have some final questions. Like, um, (laughs) this is a big one, but, um, it's part of it's kind of guiding the 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 format and the reason I, I made this podcast. But in your in your life, if you had to name one Hispanic role model, who would that be and why? And there, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. <laughs> um. That is a hard question. So, so let me just, let, I'll frame it why I'm asking it is because, and maybe you can explain why this is it. So the way I see it is in African-American culture, you have the Martin Luther Kings, you have the juniors, you have the Harriet Tubman's, Malcolm X's. So I can name off three, four, five, Frederick Douglass, I can keep going, you know, and then of course, white America, you know, the leaders that are American, Caucasian or white ancestry. But why don't Hispanic and Latino names just roll off the tongue like those other prominent non-white or people of color? Well, I can tell you for me, I didn't interpret the question that way. I took it personally as who to me, you know, influenced me the most. Now there has been through the, and again, I go back to Broward County, um, Hispanic infusion you know, Hispanic history infused into the curriculum so that kids now growing up hear about the Hispanic inventors and, you know, politicians and actors and, you know, you name all of that scientists. 90s and up or in the 2000s and up? Or when do you think this was in? In Broward, it was in the 90s and up, late 80s, early 90s that we had the infusion program, multicultural infusion program. And in South Florida, I was infusing um, Black Americans, um, Hispanic Americans, and Haitian Americans, and the history into the culture. So, so and, like, maybe, maybe I missed that class, but other than like, <laughs> other than like Cesar Chavez and yes. <laughs> where, what other ones? Of course, the minute you say that, of course, you can't think of anything, but, um, and I can't think of her name, the Supreme Court Justice. Oh, Sotomayor? Yes. But that's recent. That's in the last 10 years. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I I was born in 86, and I went through all this education, and I can Mm -hmm. only name one Mexican farm worker. (laughs) Now, I'm sure there was many. you've never been to a farm. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there was many Latin Americans that helped build this country in between then. Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about historical figures like Christopher Columbus and Juan Ponce de Leon and Simón Bolivar. Like I'm talking about like recent in the last century. Why isn't that more prevalent or why? I think it, it just for the same reason that probably the other cultures haven't been infused, that it hasn't been enough or important enough. And the more we go through history, the more people there are out there that contribute and it becomes less significant, you know, unfortunately. And I think it's a matter of, again, publishers and what, you know, they 
put in their books. I think a lot of that too depends on where you're, you know, certainly South Florida would have been a place for you to get that mm -hmm. um, compared to Iowa or I don't know, Wisconsin or someplace. But I think that there probably are places where you would go and see more of the Hispanic influence in the history books and um, and so forth. I'm sorry, but I I know I'm looking down because I'm trying to get an important message. Oh, I thought you were trying to Google <laughs> prominent Hispanic <laughs> Americans in <laughs> and rattle them off. <laughs> you can do that after the podcast. Yeah. But um, did you think of like one that you can, one prominent like Latino or Latina that that you respect? It could be something something current or you know something in the last that you you're like oh wow you know we made it. Um, what was there was and I I I'm really serious when I'm telling you that right now I've gone blank. But I do remember reading a biography, and I want to say that, and I hate to say that he was an actor, but I want to say that he was an actor, and I never knew he was Hispanic, and when I started reading, I said, oh my God, you know, he's Hispanic? I didn't know that, that type of thing. And then I remember for some reason at one point in my life, I decided to look at the credits in movies and then I would see all these Hispanic names and say, ah, you know, for some reason I never thought that, I don't know why that Hispanics were involved in all of this. And that might be because I wasn't exposed to that, that, you know, you only hear about the others. But I remember looking at the credits to see then once I got into it, seeing how many Hispanic names I would find in the credits of a movie now, or go ahead no so so that kind of brings me back to like um in, in our closing but you earlier you had mentioned that sometimes people from a predominant culture like we can say african-american or hispanic if they take an iq test they can't relate to the the themes or the questions that are on that iq test because they don't have that upbringing or that, that environment around them do you think if the Latino, prominent and successful Latinos were more prevalent and easily named that, that, that would serve, they would serve as role models for Latin kids. You, seeing somebody of the same color, the same nationality or the same ethnicity or culture, does that help up, uplift yes. somebody? Yes. What's the psychology? Because you always have that little kid in class that finally looks at someone and says, ah, you know, he made it and he did this and whatever, you know, and if he's in a situation where for some reason he feels or has been led to assume that that role isn't for him because of his background, then he sees that image and says, well, if he can do it, I can do it too. Just like, you know, I think many um, young African-American kids realize I can be president after Obama because, you know, and there's that classic picture of a little African-American boy touching Obama's hair and then touching his like, ah, oh, he has the same, you know, hair as I do, but it's like, you know, he's like me and he's, you know, there. So mm -hmm. I think that has a lot to do with it. I think it helps. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mom. Um, this is Barbara Valdez, Barbara Fernandez Valdez. <laughs> this is very Big important. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you for for taking the time and being the inaugural podcast. And I hope it helps helps the listeners. You know, just kind of get an wow. understanding of the history. I'm glad you got to learn a little bit about me in a different way than you know, um, son, mother conversations so mm -hmm. just you know keep up the good work and maybe i'll be able to rattle your name off as an influential hispanic role model in a few years if i'm still around Hopefully. god will <laughs> all right good night so and have a good night
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, hit subscribe, and of course, follow us on IG, Facebook, and all other social media platforms at Platform Latino. That's P-L-A-T-F-O-R-M-L-A-T-I-N-O. Thanks again, and have a wonderful and inspired day. Thank you.